0: Everything is on you. Right. But you're not an island. This happens collectively and no one has gotten anywhere completely by themselves.
1: That's the voice of Chelsea Gaddy, owner of Force Collide. And I'm excited to talk with her right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Chelsea Gaddy, owner of the Seattle, Washington-based furniture company Force Collide. Mixing the soul of an artist and the practicality of a business owner isn't always easy. But since 2013, Chelsea has been doing just that building and growing her business while keeping the heart of it in the creative world. She has also brought the idea of community to the forefront of her business model. Through classes and other community outreach, she provides women and girls the opportunity to embrace metalworking as a viable professional path. Follow along as we talk about where to get the best business advice, how to juggle multiple revenue streams inside one company, the importance of originality, and much more. We talk about so much in this episode, so let's get right into it and hear about Chelsea's journey in her own words.
0: Yeah, I'm someone who didn't have exposure to building things growing up uh, for better or worse. And I always knew from a young age that I wanted to be an artist. That's always kind of how I identified myself. So I actually went to school at University of Washington and got a BFA in fine art for photography. And that's kind of how I started my formal education, I guess you could say. Um, I had the intention, I think, throughout that time of becoming a working full-time artist and, you know, also thought a lot about curating other people's artwork and just being involved in the community. So I think like a lot of people, like what I wanted and the reality of course, were two different things and you just have to learn that going through your college education sometimes. So um, I worked in the field um, in fine art for a while. I tried a couple different things and it just didn't feel in the end like it was for me. So kind of at some point decided not to pursue that. Then again, looking back now, I can more easily connect the dots in terms of how that influenced me to get into furniture. They seem... Kind of unrelated in a lot of ways, but um, I was working in the service industry for a long time. And while I was doing that, I decided to start taking classes for welding and blacksmithing and metal fabrication. So I spent my days off or afternoons before work or evenings taking classes in my spare time at a uh, small fine arts center here in Seattle. And I was very fortunate to meet so many great people there. I think. The teacher I had for most of my courses for about three years was, you know, a lot like a mentor to me, just talking to me about my continued interest. And every time I kind of expressed that I might want to take it further, he was a huge encouragement to me. So I would say it had previously been uh, somewhat of a hobby that I really appreciated, particularly mid-century modern furniture um, and design. So I'd always wanted to build things in 3D, always wanted to try working with my hands. I think for me, that what completed the circuit was like the first time I um, ever tried welding. It just felt like it clicked for me, you know, like I can combine all those things I'm interested in. Right. And I did just genuinely really enjoy welding more than anything at the time that I had tried. So that led me to go as far as I could, um, even though it wasn't a, a formal institutional level of education at that point. But in that way, I think it gave me a lot of freedom to do what I wanted to do. And it was a mix of art and technical training. So yeah, it was really through that time at Fine Arts Center that I I kind of just had this feeling that I wanted to try something and I pursued it as much as I could. I ended up meeting another artist that was looking for someone to share her studio. So it all kind of all the stars aligned. I got my first custom furniture commission right around that time. And I started renting my own space within someone else's shop. And that's when I began kind of tooling up and learning what it would be like to run a business. So it really was started from the ground up. I kept my part-time job for a little while until it was sure that the plane was going to take off, I guess you could say. But yeah, I didn't have any formal business training which sometimes I think business owners sometimes regret that. I've actually thought about maybe going back for a mini MBA at some point. Then again, a lot of that, you know, is just something that you learn by doing and learn by trial and error. And sometimes if if you're like me where the growth was starting small and slow and steady, then that can can work. It depends on where your interests lay. And I think it was really intimidating at first like figuring out what I even needed to know to be properly be a business. But I think eventually I realized that side really appealed to me. So I kind of have leaned into it over the years and I've become more of a numbers person and a projections, budgets, business plans, models, all that stuff. I just, I find that I think because it, of what it is, because it supports the idea that I really enjoy it.
1: Well, your growth was organic. Your furniture business growth, the business side and the artistic side were both organic. You were learning as you were going and people build businesses that way. They don't know it all coming in, but if they wanna stay successful, if they wanna keep growing, if they wanna basically stay in business, then they need to learn. Learning on the job is one way to do it. And it gives you that real feel, that in the trenches feel of what a business is, because it's not just stuff in a book that you think maybe this will work in the future. It's stuff that is happening right there. You're in it, you're live, and you need to figure out what to do at that moment. I want to talk about your business, obviously. That's why we're here. But I want to take a step back and also ask you, because you went through that formal arts training, and a lot of people think that they need to go that route, to have an artistic business. And I know a lot of people who have done that and have been incredibly successful, but I also know a lot of people who haven't done that and have been successful. So you having gone that way and then looking back on it, I'm wondering for people who are going in that direction, they are doing a formal arts training. What would you say to them to also be doing on the business side? Because- I found that a lot of people who go in that direction, they learn a lot about the art, they learn how to produce the art, but they don't learn the business side. So I just love to hear your take on what you think people should be doing while they're also in school and also learning about the artistic side.
0: That's a really good question. I think, you know, again, while maybe coming out of that four-year program, at the time I did feel a little lost and kind of oh, I wish this had been more practical. That said, I do want to point out what can't be quantified that it did teach me and help me develop was having an eye, right? And I think that's something that you, you can't always teach that, but I will say putting years and years into thinking about composition or balance or um, proportions and that, you know, that's where there is, a connection between the photography I did and the and the furniture even though they're seemingly so unrelated. So I am really grateful to have had that. And I, you know, maybe it is important to just focus on one thing at a time. That said, there are so many basics to even being a working artist, even if you're not going to be a manufacturer like I am. Looking into local resources on the city level, there are often A lot of great free programs that will just do workshops, right? And three hours here and there can tell you so much about, okay, what are the licenses you need to gain? How much are they going to cost? You know, what does the insurance look like? What's the purpose of insurance? What does bonding mean? Making sure you have your boxes checked on both the city, county, state, and federal level because the requirements are so different for, you know, there are a lot, it seems, like from the business owners point of view that there's a lot of duplication but they each have their own their separate entities right so taxes like what to expect in terms of how to charge sales tax and report it properly what is BO tax um, you know when you get more into having employees that learning curve gets even steeper because you've it's really important to do payroll taxes properly that said, these days, there are so many types of software that just make all that easier. So I would say just look into resources. The internet is your friend. I mean, be careful listening to anyone and everyone on the internet, but you can learn so much through um, YouTube. And I think like online support groups for business owners, that's actually during COVID when we were looking at like all these tax laws and and funding opportunities and things like that. I... Um, was able to lean into, oddly enough, a Facebook group where I could ask really specific questions. And I probably would have missed a lot of opportunities if it wasn't for that. Right. So, community, asking your fellow business owners, other artists you know that might be more experienced than you. Like I said, when I got started, I was really fortunate that the metalworking community was just so generous with its knowledge, not only technical, but You know, I think it's no surprise that anyone who is doing this for a living really loves to build things, but the client side as well is also really tricky to navigate. And often we learn that by doing right. So there's not only the business, but there's also the service and just talking to people, sharing experiences, thinking ahead a little bit about that. And again, I think it really depends on how you're trying to launch your business. Are you trying to start big with several employees and investors and loans? Okay, well, in that case, you really need to have a business plan laid out ahead of time. If you're starting smaller like I did, I went back and wrote a business plan later, actually. And like I said, I think that's something I'm always looking to keep updated. Um, You don't do it once and then forget about it. You really use it as a guide map throughout the years and it can change, right? And so maybe you don't think you'll ever want to get a loan and that you want to only ever Use the money within the business to keep it going, but you might change your mind and realize that you have an idea that just requires capital up front or something like that. And in that case, having a business plan is just one less thing to have to do when you move forward on something like that. So I think it really depends on the goal. If you want to just be one person working by yourself in the long term, but for me, I have wanted to slowly grow. Started hiring employees a couple of years ago and to me there was no going back at that point. I I've always worn all the hats in the business, but being able to delegate and scale even on a small level is invaluable. So it's a whole other skill set to start doing that, but you know, at some point you realize you can't do everything yourself forever, right?
1: It's true, you can't. And that is why you lean on community, which is what you did and you learn from people who have done it before because you don't need to reinvent everything Yourself. If there's people who have blazed that trail already, then there's nothing wrong with following in somebody else's footsteps until you get to a point where you know enough and you can go out on your own. And that is a great way to learn the business while you're in the business, learning in real time and figuring it out in real time. And there's also nothing wrong with outsourcing things that you're not good at. Not everybody is good at everything. You know, if everybody could do everything, then nobody would have job titles. Everybody would just be an entire entity to themselves. But not only is there nothing wrong with outsourcing stuff, but it's also if you want to grow, it's the smart move because you need to weigh your time against the time you're taking to learn a new trade, learn how to. Be a professional photographer, learn how to be a bookkeeper, learn how to be an electrician, learn how to do all these things that you might want to be able to do. But does it really make sense in your bottom line to learn that rather than outsource it to somebody else?
0: Yeah. And I think too, just being prepared for things to be different than you thought going into it, right? Like, so if it was up to me, I would be fabricating in the shop most days of the week and, and building things, right? I mean, that's why I got into this, but I've come to realize that sometimes did I envision that I would be on the computer doing CAD modeling as much as I am in my full-time role now? No, of course I didn't. That wouldn't have been something I would have looked forward to starting my business. And yet I realize how important it is for me to manage projects well and you know, so much of what we do is design. We design a lot of our own work and that takes a ton of time. And so, you know, I didn't do this I never did want a desk job. On the other hand, it is a really important tool that I value and I realize that right now that's something that's better left for me to do and delegate to an employee to do the shop fabrication because the ideas are in my head and it's just a lot more efficient for me to draw them, right? And also, since I'm the one interfacing with clients and like I said, just a lot more efficient to be the drafter. So filling shoes where they need to be filled until you're ready to pass that on to somebody else. And I think the last couple of years, I've leaned a lot into that project management, which again, would really have surprised me looking back in 2013 when I started my business you'd ask me what I thought I'd be doing. It wouldn't necessarily be being in meetings on site visits and on 3D modeling software a lot of the time. So adapting to change, being where you need to be, where it's best for the business, it's not necessarily about what I want. And I think at some point you do realize you have to separate. You know, you are such a big part of the business, of course, it's, but it becomes its own monster that you kind of, in order to run well, you know, it might be at odds with what you want sometimes. And you've got to really decide how to find that endurance to keep going and kind of get through difficult times where things may not be going how you want. Or the important thing for me was having a clear vision when I started. And even though it's been almost nine years now, that vision has stayed pretty true the entire time. And of course, of course, I've adapted and things have happened that I didn't expect and not everything went as planned. Right. But that core, the core values are still the same. And I think I can almost close my eyes and envision, you know, in the abstract, what I want my business to be. And you just kind of have to hang on to that idea. Right. As things change and
1: develop, things definitely change. Things develop where you've started is not where you end up. It's hard to run a business. And nobody is saying that it's easy. And and especially when you're doing it and you're working with a lot of different projects, you have employees, you have clients, you have things going on that are not controllable. And you have to adapt with every single part of it. Let's talk a little bit about your business. You said you close your eyes and you can see where you want it to be. So let's talk about where you want it to be. Right now, you have three different avenues of your workflow. One, you have your repeatable furniture. You have your furniture collection that you sell in stores and directly to clients. You also have the custom fabrication where you do artistic pieces, you do architectural pieces, you do custom work for a variety of residential and commercial clients. And then you also do public works, which are bigger pieces. And I'm sure that comes with a whole nother set of difficulties that you probably never even imagined the first time you started welding things. So let's talk a little bit about how your business is structured and how you jump around from all three of those things on a daily basis.
0: Yeah. So furniture is my um, first love and why I, I started this business, of course. And and so that is a, always a mainstay of, I think, that custom side where clients trust me to, they trust my vision, they trust the quality and the level of service, and, and they allow me that creative freedom to make something a maybe it's one piece or a collection for them over time. And that's really what I'm really passionate about. That said, I think, you know, I'm not a generalist, but I do think diversification is so important to a business. It's going to ebb and flow where you have more demand, right? And so the products, you could describe them as furniture or decor, home accent pieces. They have been really critical. Like, so if it were up to me, I wouldn't make the same thing twice, probably almost ever. Like I kind of always want to be on to the next challenge, right? But that's not Always feasible. When you do that, you're learning how to build something for the first and final time every time, right? And so, introducing a repeatable design into the workflow, you get a lot more of a known quantity. You understand exactly what the costs are going in, and you understand your profit margin better, right? And you also, like, I've been able to write manuals on how to build these things so that my staff at any given time can be successful working on those if I'm not there or have questions about it. So that's been super helpful. And also, you know, we build those in, in small volume batches. Of course, we still make them all in-house. Everything happens in our shop, but we make, you know, 30 to 40 planters at one time instead of one piece of furniture. So you start to gain on your setup time a lot. And you realize like how much of the time spent is in the setup, right? You can really dial in your efficiencies, invest a chunk of time in building inventory upfront. You may, to some extent, have to cash flow that process a little bit and the sales come later, depending on how it works. But then you can be selling those kind of in the background while you're back to working on your custom or your architectural projects. And that's generally how we do things. We kind of about twice a year go into production on... The DECA planters, sometimes there's a large custom order, or maybe we just build a variety of sizes to have in stock, right? And then, you know, the other side, outside of the furniture, as you mentioned, is the architectural metal side. And so that has definitely come more into play during the pandemic, um, where the focus was on high end residential construction remodeling. And what I really love about that side is working with bigger teams to collaborate. Sometimes the work is already designed by an architect or designer, but we still have our technical expertise to bring into play on the fabrication plan, materials and finishes. And it just can be so satisfying, I think, to complete the circuit for the team and really bring that specialization in where on bigger projects, like someone who's very specialized in metal is just really necessary. The newest aspect of our work is public works projects, which are, you know, a totally different format from the private side. So, we've been hired by Sound Transit to fabricate a large scale piece of artwork, a permanent artwork for a new light rail station in Seattle. And it's a huge project, amazing. The artist who designed the piece is incredible. And we're still in the design phase. But so far, it's just been a really great experience. So I'm very interested to see where that goes, because I think there are a lot of opportunities in that realm. And, you know, like I said, it's almost like a completely different business format because um, municipal projects have their own outline for how contracts are established. And there are just much greater entities involved that, and, you know, it's really interesting to approach projects, thinking more about the betterment of community more. So it's been um, really fun to like diversify even more and we'll see where it goes. Maybe we will do more public works projects. But I think the point is, I feel like I'm the, as the owner, you know, outside of even my personal interest in what I want to do, I feel like I'm the steward for the business. I need to be out there making sure I'm exploring all the avenues and capturing the opportunities that I feel like are a good fit for the business and that can support the staff that can afford growing a staff over time um, and essentially like increasing productivity and still staying true to like the core values, which really are quality and service, right? So originality, quality, and service. Sometimes I feel like the client relationship is really the key thing behind, like, if you asked me, like, what's my favorite thing to make? Sometimes it really just comes back to not the nature of the product exactly, like the physical nature of the product so much as that experience the client has with the company and the client relationship and bringing them in on kind of what's involved in building something, you know, enriching their experience in making an investment in a piece, whether that is a federal entity or a homeowner or a construction company, right?
1: I can really hear that, that I don't want to call it a conflict, but that tightrope walk that so many of us furniture makers do where we love the artistic side. We love the building something new, building something creative starting with raw materials and making a piece of furniture out of it and making something that's beautiful in the world. And then the other side is running a business and getting money and being able to pay employees and being able to pay ourselves and being able to keep the lights on. And there's that balance that you always have to be working on. You know, When you say you wish every single one of your projects could be a one-off, that is the artistic drive in you. But then there's the we batch out 30 to 40 at a time products that we make and then we sell them. And there's that that balance that you have to have where it's not all art and it's not all business. It's somewhere right down the middle that you can be happy with your daily work.
0: Definitely. I think, you know, for me, I find a lot of satisfaction in making things that serve a purpose. And if that's more artistic, great. That the more artistic, the better, right? However, I think making things that are useful is also incredibly satisfying. And if you're filling a gap for somebody they couldn't find on the market, for and that's the beauty of custom, right? Like off the shelf is obviously more affordable typically, but a lot of times our clients can't find exactly that, Range hood they're looking for, or whatever it is, right? Coffee table, end table. Or maybe they want, you know, a set of furniture that can be modular because they know they're going to be moving a few times over the next few years and they don't exactly know how much space they're going to have, right? So they get that full on experience. It's not add to cart, it's um, quite the opposite. You know, we build that, what that looks like together. And again, even if it's something for an industrial purpose that's just useful something about making that happen for the client and just knowing that you're helping them at the end of the day is a great feeling. So I've, yeah, I've broadened my idea of like, what, well, what would I want to make? Right. I think in general, I love to kind of try to work outside of the safe zone design and push new ideas and, and things that are uncommon. I think I'm not trying to just add more stuff to the world. There's so much stuff, you know. And that gets really tricky when you turn that lens back on yourself and well, what am I adding? Even if you think it's different, can you reinvent a chair again? Like maybe not, but you know, I do just think there's a lot of beauty in design and the experience that people have with their things, right? And especially if they have that connection with the person that made them. And I just think we're at this point, um we're really seeing this now with Supply chain issues. And we'll probably continue to see it where we're not accustomed to relying on our own ability to manufacture products. And so it's just, it's so valuable to me, I think, to fill that role where I can.
1: There's no denying that you have a real passion for the work that you make, the ideas that you create and what you put out into the world and working Through a piece by yourself and turning that into what you see in your mind is something that you love to do. But on the business side, you are scaling your company. You have employees, you have other people who you need to share your vision with to make it a reality. And that can be a difficult process because you are a furniture maker and you started as a furniture maker, but then as you got more successful, you needed to bring other people on. And when you bring other people on, you're not a furniture maker anymore. You're a boss of a furniture company and that's a different thing. So how have you balanced your ability to create and your creative process in general with being a boss and having to share that creativity with other people to make them not only build what you see in your mind, but also have a good work environment that they want to continue being an employee with you.
0: Yeah, so much to unpack there. Um, I think First of all, I've been really fortunate to have the people that have worked with me have worked with me in the long term, right? And that's just invaluable because the longer you work together, the more you get to know each other. And the, you know, it gets a a little more effortless all the time to communicate and have employees understand expectations, right? Uh, or what the expectations are. So I would say, yeah, communication really is the key thing. I Other shops that I have worked for in the past, I learned a little bit from that as a fabricator or an assistant fabricator when I was first getting started, like what was working for me and what wasn't working for me, right? And just reflecting on that and trying to really hold that in my mind. So something that I value a lot is letting an employee in on the bigger picture of a project or even of how things are going with the company in general, right? But specifically with projects, I think from the bidding stage, even brainstorming different ways to make things, putting minds together to evaluate which method might be more successful or more efficient and keeping that calm, you know, letting people really have a say in how things are built, right? Because I'm, I think... (laughs) You know, I, w- I wouldn't be surprising anyone I know to say I am extremely particular. On the other hand, I also know that more than one way to skin a cat. So I really value the input of everyone who's worked for me at different times. And I think taking your ego out of it wherever possible, it's a, tr- it's a fine line because you also need to just make decisions and move forward, right? Sometimes that extra time spent can make or break like your timeline, for example, going back and forth on stuff can be not great but i think letting people in on the bigger picture listening to what they have to say what their concerns are what they see as potential pitfalls that i may have missed in the in the fabrication process right what's so hard about bidding and estimating is that you're looking at it from the most optimistic point of view possible um because you you want for the for the business you want to get the job and you want it to be a good job and A lot of time an employee has that other way of looking at things where they're seeing what's going to be really difficult to execute or to pull off and what might be more of a time sink than you thought about, right? So it really just helps complete the whole picture, I think, working together as a team and... I think the more I've let people in on my process and how I think about things, the easier it's been for them to execute those things and and understand what is my style, what am I looking for, the fact that we don't ever cut any corners, right? So they're keeping that in mind the entire time and then thinking about what six or seven steps out from now, they cheat something a little bit, how's that going to come out? In seven more steps, it's going to compound, you know, it's going to compound perhaps. And so having that foresight and it also has just given me the ability to manage things and know that, that the shop work is still getting done, which is incredible. <laughs> so it is really hard to like, let go. It's of course just, and learning how to delegate was definitely a process for me. Just even describing like, you know, I know the process and previously had done it without talking about it. Right. Right. So learning how to put words to that and learning how to train people to do things, it's a very specialized thing that we do. And I think there are a lot of different avenues to learn the trades, but one of my goals is to open up opportunities for those who would otherwise have a barrier to entry in the field, right? So really focused on like hiring women, for example, I think it's okay to have less experience. To me, it's more about Being passionate and caring about what you're doing, regardless of how much training you have. It's all about that. eye. I think teaching people how to look at things is like half the job, that bond that you have with someone that you build things with is really irreplaceable. Um, And yeah, and we've given more thought to be teaching workshops for other women or young girls and setting aside time for that too, because I just think it's so important to Again, I didn't grow up building things. I was never exposed to that, you know, directly. And my goal would be for other, for young girls to know that is an option for them. They may not like it. They may not want to do it and that's fine. But I think just getting to try it, right. And knowing that it like, it just never occurred to me until I was probably 25, that that would be a viable career option for me, which is like mind blowing. I think, you know, that's a huge sector of possibilities that just previously seemed closed.
1: Being in the position to bring that to the greater community, to be able to offer your experiences up to other people who might want to follow in your footsteps is, is an important part of what drives you to be successful in your business to keep your business going. And there's obviously the bottom line, the money and growth of a business, but you can't forget about what drives somebody. It's not necessarily the business side. It's also the emotional side. It's the mental side. It's what helps you get up every day and push your business forward and continue to push your business forward. And it's different for everybody than that. You can't, you can't count out. You just, you can't, as much as we want to say, this is all business. This is all dollar signs and red and black ink. It's not, there's a person behind every business. And that is the, that is the heart of what a business is.
0: Yeah. That's part of the motivation to slowly scale and grow too, right? Is to be able to choose to put effort in certain areas that may not be lucrative, but that are important to you. And the more you can have things running smoothly and have a little bit of a diversification of products and have, you know, multiple plates spinning all the time so that one thing can kind of compensate for another if, if the demand goes down for your product or vice versa. And then, you know, slowly then I can start to think about, well, what am I passionate about beyond the the making the business work. And well, maybe we can afford to do eight hours a month of community engagement workshops, whatever that may be, networking and meeting people and just talking to people, right? So on that note, I think the other big piece for me in terms of companies' core values are something that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough too, which is originality and design and intellectual property, right? So The more I've kind of broadened my client base to work with other design professionals and and bigger teams, it's just become really clear to me that it's the norm to copy other work, right? And I think that's the other thing that um, going to art school probably imprinted on me in some subtle way is that's not okay, right? Making money off of somebody else's idea is you've got to have more integrity than that, right? and the integrity that you keep and that you stand up for will work for itself. That's what I believe. So if people are coming at you asking you to copy stuff they see on the internet, detail for detail, it's kind of on you to decide, you know, maybe you're not aware of that, right? But if you are aware of it, take some time to think about it before you, because it's so tempting to say yes to everything, right? You want to do what's best for the business. You want to bring in the revenue. I think it's really good to make sure that things are in line with your values in that way. And sometimes people might send you a sketch and you're not sure where it came from and they're not going to maybe tell you, right? So find ways to ask and to vet people on that. Is this your own design? Or do you mind me asking who came up with this? You know, it could, it doesn't have to be a hostile question. I think fact finding is all part of the design process, right? So You know, and I've just seen it happen to too many people I know where all of a sudden somebody either overseas or not is manufacturing their exact design, but for a lot cheaper and underselling it on Etsy or wherever it is and it's just a heartbreaking thing to have that happen to you because you can't—you really can't put a price on your ideas, right? You can put a price on your shop time, on your project management time, on your—even on your drafting time, whatever. It, and it just—it's so um, having seen it from both sides, I just really encourage people who want to start furniture companies to give some thought to that upfront because you're going to be asked to do it. There's no doubt about it, right? And you need to either stick to your guns. Or be honest with yourself. Maybe you, maybe for you, you don't mind the idea of copying something, but you really do need to explore the legality of that as well. Because even if you think there's nothing wrong with it, that could come back to surprise you later too. Like I said earlier, is, is there any reinventing the wheel with furniture? Well, maybe not, but so I think there's a fine line between housing the internet for inspiration, right? Which is, it's, it is important to look at other people's work. And to see what's going on in design and let people inspire you for sure. But I think just be very aware of yourself and your design process and how much of that, you know, for example, there are ways to deal with it properly by reaching out to somebody and saying, I just really loved this little detail that you put in. Do you mind if I use it and credit you for it? Or I would love to throw you a nod for being my source of inspiration for this piece. How do you feel about that? And just have a conversation about it, especially if it's a smaller company, you know? And a lot of times the, the the copying that's happening is like a huge company, like a faceless, nameless company that's taking a smaller company's idea and scaling it in manufacturing, right? And unfortunately, that's a pretty hard battle to win. But I would say just put yourself in that other person's shoes when you think about that. You don't wanna find yourself looking back having realized you copied something, And but it's really important to take responsibility in your role as a manufacturer in general. And so, yeah, I'm just a big fan of for a company to have a strong identity in that sense.
1: Imitation is not always the sincerest form of flattery. Sometimes it's a problem. Sometimes it's putting people out of business because clients will take stuff off the internet they'll bring it to the lowest bidder. And because once it's out there, it's sort of free game for anyone to be influenced by or copy. On the other end, if if somebody's bringing something to you that you can see is another design on the technical side, you can always use Google image search, put it in there and you can put it in there and you can figure out exactly where it came from and
0: absolutely and that a number of times and I've been like wow well okay yeah <laughs> no i'm not gonna bid on that but thank you for asking you know yeah it's hard to say no, but it's important sometimes
1: it is it is and it's all about how you want to run your company and the integrity that you want to put out into the world
0: yeah We've talked a lot about comedian in general, and I just think it's important for business owners. Often you feel very alone, feel like everything is on you, right? But you're not an island. This happens collectively and no one has gotten anywhere completely by themselves. So you really need to value that, You know, the other people that are doing what you're doing in your community because you never know when you're going to need them, when you're going to need to turn to someone for help it's important to think about how you're treating each other, you know? It's been a huge highlight, I think for me through this business is some of the friends that I've made, you know, I've even, it's not really my style, but I've even met other makers online that I've then met in real life later on. And they really have become friendships um, in my life. And, you know, that's just something you can't put a price on either. Only a singular experience to try to run a furniture manufacturing company. It's not easy work and being able to share that with other people and share in those experiences and go to people for their take on things when you're not sure.
1: Sometimes along the lines of not being an Island onto yourself as a furniture company, there's also another way that you can grow your business. And that is with certifications and becoming Mm. certified in different ways. I know that's something that you've done and you've had success come from it. So could you talk a little bit about the certification process and how that's helped your business grow?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things where I'm an instrument to find resources for the business and that is a resource. So we recently became uh, certified as a woman owned business enterprise, both on the state, city, and federal level, which are all different, of course, application processes and whatnot. So I'm still wondering how that's going to unfold to an extent, and it does feel a little foreign. like there's along with it comes so many new things to learn and networking opportunities and workshops that I sometimes feel I don't have time for. But I will say, in the world of construction and, and building things in general, Sexism is not a myth and it really is evident to me on a daily basis sometimes how um, opportunities are presented differently as a woman owning a business. So yeah, I feel like the goal is not to be chosen for the job because you're a woman, of course, or to fulfill a quota, hopefully not. The goal is to be exposed to opportunities that you otherwise would not be made aware of or have been referred to because it it is, it can be kind of a closed loop. It's just, a, it's a highly male dominated and white male dominated field for that matter. So I'm still, you know, I think the first thing that it kind of helped connect me with was the public works project. And that wasn't the sole reason that I kind of fell into that. Um, on the other hand, it's, I know these agencies are really looking to expand and support smaller women, minority owned businesses as much as possible. And, you know, there's overall a good recognition that that's a big problem. So any tool to kind of help bridge that gap of, I think a lot of times people just aren't sure, like they maybe want to hire a woman or minority owned business in a certain field, but they just don't know any, right. Because the percentages are so much smaller. Do you want to rely on that? I don't know. Maybe some companies are kind of driven solely by the government procurement process. I would say since it hasn't been the norm for me yet, I've, I'm have i sure that I haven't fully taken advantage of it as much as I could. But yeah, I laid the groundwork for that. And now I'm kind of excited to see where it might go. And you know, maybe our client base kind of ends up staying the same. I'm not sure. But I also wouldn't want to look back and think, I wonder how things would be different had I gone through that application process 5 years ago, you know.
1: We've talked a lot on this episode about community and about how important it is to always have your community as a sounding board for you to help you through the business side, the personal side, the growth side and how that community also reflects back to you and reaches back out to you and You can help them and they help you. And it becomes a process of growth for everybody. So for people listening who want to be in that community, who want to start a business, who see what you've grown and they want to be a successful business with years of experience and multiple employees and growing by leaps and bounds every year, and they want to have a company like that. And there's also people in the community who say, I've put in the work I've put in work like you have, but I haven't gotten the same success. And I want that. And I want to know how to get to that level for people listening. What's some advice that you could share about your journey from where you started to now and to where you're going to be taking this business that you could share with people to help them grow their business as well? It's
0: hard to pick. There's so many things to touch on, and that's such a good question. Um, I would say sometimes um, it's not the first thing you want to do, but try to approach business with organization in mind from the beginning if you can. I see sometimes it's really hard to go back and totally rework your systems once things are going. You just don't have time for that, right? And so giving some thought to the organization of the business side, keeping track of things really well, leaning into the stuff that isn't fun in hopes that you'll realize how much it helps you in the end, right? Um, Practice writing budgets, practice Learning how to make spreadsheets in Excel, you're going to have to eventually, you know, it's never something I wanted to do, but now, honestly, I love it. Learning about your specific industry as much as you can. For instance, what are the typical profit margins, how to assess overhead, all that stuff that's not super fun. And whether that means maybe doing some online classes, there's so many free courses online these days, right? And, and, and hopefully in person again too. track your time. That's been enlightening to me is like, you wonder where your time goes. Well, you can figure it out pretty easily if you track it. And that has, you know, led to some pretty key um, analyses of how my business breaks out on a weekly basis. Like what's billable, what's not billable, how much time gets spent on design and, and in meetings, et cetera. So I would say, you know, if that's hard for you, that Type of thing doesn't appeal to you, start practicing it even on a small level. You don't have to go in with a five year plan. But I will say, I've just for me, embracing that stuff has is probably the reason I'm still in business, right? Like, I feel like at any given moment, I could probably tell you with a pretty confident sense how things are going for the business. And that means knowing how to look at the numbers, keeping up on my books. Et cetera. And it's always a learning process, right? Like I have a long way to go, you know, as this grows to really understand all that. Um, I would also say, try to spend time envisioning where you want things to go. And if they're not going as planned or how you want, think of positive things you could contribute to steer them either back in the direction you originally wanted, or maybe just be open to a new direction altogether, Right. At some point it had, you know, it did become really important for me to separate my personal life from the business, which is almost impossible. <laughs> you know, ultimately be prepared to work 24-7. That's there's never a moment where I'm not thinking about it or I'm not making myself available. And, you know, I think if you're having a fantasy of starting a furniture, a metalworking or a woodworking company, having been Um, at a nine to five job for a long time, it's going to be pretty different than what you think. It's not all super fun and you need to be able to plan in advance how you can go periods of time without paying yourself. And what's your backup plan? What does that look like for you? It could be different for everybody, right? And I certainly wouldn't want to discourage anyone to try it, but the hard realities are clients are going to be asking you to meet in the evenings, on the weekends, a lot of the time. And there's, there's a lot, of building that has to happen sometimes before cash flow is really there, right? And there's so many costs to account for that. And it just seems like more and more all the time, of course, especially the last couple of years with how materials and costs have been going. So um, the more you can plan, the better you will kind of be able to endure those rough spots where maybe it's a little bit slow. Maybe it's not slow, but you just cash flow is terrible. I find that often Busyness and cash flow can kind of be at odds with one another. When you are your busiest, you need to be able to spend the most. And the timing of payments. The more you can plan and have your terms really clear with clients, and be prepared for hiccups, more likely you'll be in it for the long term. Right? There's endless amounts of um, bits of advice to give, but.
1: It's true. There's endless, there's endless advice that you could give and you could talk through each and every single day of your business and still have stuff to teach people because that is the beauty of people having their own business, that they learn their own business by having their own business. And we as business owners can share A lot with people, but in truth, people have to walk on their own feet and they have to figure out what works for them. And I do appreciate you sharing all of the knowledge that you have in this episode and you being open to talking about your journey and how you've grown your business. And I know that this episode could go on for days where you could share (laughs) everything that you've learned, but. I do appreciate what you have shared and I know it's going to help a lot of people listening.
0: I hope so. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I always really enjoy talking about not only the work itself and how things get built and processes, but talking about the business is fun.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com.